The State of the Union is usually the most watched presidential speech of the year. In it, the president sets where he wants to take the United States. So where does Biden want to take the United States of America? Welcome to The Conquering Truth. I'm Dan Horn. I'm Jonathan Sides. I'm Charles Churchill. And I'm Joshua Horn. President Biden recently gave a State of the Union address. And with his low approval ratings, clearly he's trying to reset his political fortune, if you will, where he's headed. And so this was his big chance to kind of say, this is where I want to take the country. This is where it is, and this is where I want to take it. And so we kind of want to walk through the, the speech and just talk about the various things that he, he brought up. And so he started with the war in Ukraine. Russia's Vladimir Putin sought to shake the very foundations of the free world, thinking he could make it bend to his menacing ways. But he badly miscalculated. He thought he could roll into Ukraine and the world would roll over. Instead, he met with a wall of strength he never anticipated or imagined. He met the Ukrainian people. The first thing that I'd say with this is we should recognize propaganda when we hear it because this is pure propaganda. When I remember Baghdad Bob, do you remember Baghdad Bob? Yes. In Baghdad Bob, when, when the, the troops were going into Iraq in the second Iraqi war, he's saying, there's nothing happening here. Everything's stopping. Everybody's getting defeated. And everybody in America laughed at it, right? I mean, he became a joke, right? He was on Al Jazeera television, and he was a joke. But if you go look now, Ukraine's a bigger country than Iraq. The ratio of troops, especially those sent in, was much higher the troops we sent into Iraq compared to what Russia sent in to Ukraine. And it took us two weeks to take Baghdad. And after five days where Putin isn't even trying that hard, meaning he's trying to just destroy strategic targets and not just try to roll over it like we did. And they're saying the Ukrainian people are these brave freedom fighters but they didn't say that about the Iraqis, and the Iraqis were doing at least as good of a job in preventing the army moving forward as the Ukrainians did. We just need to recognize that, that this language is about inspiring a people to go to war. Yeah, and, you know, wars don't really fit in the 24-hour news cycle. I mean, wars take – quick wars take weeks to unfold. Long wars take years to unfold. Super long wars take decades to unfold. So, you know, you're not – gonna really know what's happening at all when you're a week into it you know i mean there's some indication that that the russians may have gotten more than they bargained for but it's also possible that they were intentionally sending in you know kind of a week probing attacks and they're gonna just come in you know this week next week and just crush the resistance so it's really you know to to say that we know what's happening over there is not really it's not really accurate and none of this is specifically about the morality of the war, the rightness right, of it. Right. But the issue is, is it's really hard to think about the morality and the rightness of the war if you're being, your thoughts are being pulled in certain directions and you're not actually considering what information you're taking in and how it's affecting you. It's really easy to say that politicians use cheap tricks, but the reason they use cheap tricks is they work. Right. And they work on very sophisticated people. And so, I mean, it's, you know, and, and, and unsophisticated people. Right. So, I mean, it's just, it's important as we go through this, the whole point of a lot of this is to say, think about what's being said and actually think about why it's being said, because it's effective. These aren't, Joe Biden is not an idiot. His speechwriters aren't idiots. They're, they're being very purposeful in what they're doing. And, you know, I look at what the Republicans and the Democrats are saying, both of them, a lot of the leaders in both parties are very much on the drumbeat to go to war. And the way you go to war is you start talking about a group of people and you make them superheroes. You make them a cartoon rather than real people that are really suffering. Because if you go to the Ukraine, you could find as many people who backed down as they did that stood in front of the tank, right? I mean, they're choosing the pictures to set a stage and to set a, a view of the world of what things look like. And, you know, you know the fact that they're putting out the Ukraine's putting out a narrative isn't necessarily wrong either. Right. You know, that's, you know, they, they say now that there's the land, the sea, the air, and that the the fourth, you know, sphere of battle is kind of the information, you know, propaganda right. type thing. And, you know, for them to be saying we need help, you know, here we're, we have people who are bravely defending themselves, you know, that's their job. If right. They shouldn't be saying we might get crushed by the Russians and we're all going to give up. 
that's not being a good leader of, of your nation. And so it's their job to be saying that, but it's the job of people who, who aren't who aren't in the intelligence service of the Ukrainian government to be... You mean you the know, propaganda service. Propaganda, <laughs> yeah. But to, to be, you know, viewing things uh, with, with some discernment. Ideally, and, the president not being someone who who works in that, right, in that and, area. In CNN and, you know, Fox News, they're both basically playing the role of Baghdad Bob. And that is not a good thing for our country. And, you know, most times that our country have gone to war... It's gone to war on a simple slogan, right? You kind of create, remember the main, right? This is how you move a country towards war is you talk about those brave freedom fighters in Ukraine. Well, are they? Well, some are and some aren't. They're people. And, And you get this, again, this cartoonish picture that's very dangerous because even as Biden will later say in his speech that, you know, we will never set troops, you know, but really there's people already in his party that are calling for a no fly zone and no fly zone is an act of war that will result in troops now he says they're not going to do that and maybe he'll stick with that but we have to recognize that all these steps are steps that that the leaders know where they go to and they go to war i kind of want to back up just a little bit to just look at the language he used he's talking about putin shaking the foundations of the free world i mean really if, if, if the foundations of the free world are threatened by one Russian bully invading a neighboring country, then the foundations of the free world are pretty fragile. But coming out of the administration now is how Ukraine's this example of democracy. Give me a break. It's one of the most corrupt countries in the world. It's not an example of democracy. It hasn't been an example of democracy ever since it split off from the Soviet Union. It's not an example of freedom. The Ukrainian government violated the Minsk Agreement. They said that they would give independent sovereignty to these Russian provinces that were primarily Russian speakers that were part of Ukraine. And they, they didn't. And so, you know, it's really easy to go. It's about, no, it's not about democracy. It's not shaking the foundations about democracy because that's really not what this is about. There are other issues at stake. But those are words that are used to inspire the Americans to choose sides. And that's the dangerous thing. And that's what the president was trying to do. Putin's latest attack on Ukraine was premeditated and totally unprovoked. He rejected repeated, repeated efforts at diplomacy. President Biden keeps talking about the diplomacy. But the main issue in reading Putin's demands, the main thing that Putin wanted was a promise from NATO that they would not bring Ukraine in. Now, if they brought Ukraine in, it would be a declaration of war because Ukraine says the Crimean Peninsula is theirs and Russia says it's theirs. And so that would immediately mean that they would go to war. And so NATO has said that we won't do it. But he wanted a guarantee that they wouldn't bring Ukraine in, even though NATO has said they wouldn't. The diplomatic efforts that the U.S. made was to say we're not going to give a piece of paper that says something we've already committed to. But, but, but on the other, other side, you know, it's all well and good for you not to want your neighbor to ally with another world power. That is absolutely no justification to invade them. And, you know, there's a real thing. There's, there's different ways that, that Putin could have handled this. You know, he could have just sent troops to support the areas of Ukraine that had already broken away or claimed to have broken away from Ukraine. He could have done that, but that's not what he did. He invaded them. And so you kind of are in the situation where if you bring it to the personal level, it's like, you know, your neighbor might be a jerk and he might have all kinds of arguments with you over your property line. But if someone breaks into his house, you know, th- all bets are off. You know, you c- that's not how you handle these type of situations. You don't go straight for the heart and try to capture, you know, the, the country or break into the house or whatever. I mean, it's, you, they have a right to defend themselves. And that, and nobody's that, arguing the right to defend themselves. And maybe the issue is, is that I don't think we were very diplomatic in this situation at all because there were things that we could have tried at least that were not unreasonable requests on the side of Russia. They're saying don't issue a declaration of war. And we said we won't promise not to. Together, along with our allies, we are right now enforcing powerful economic sanctions. We're cutting off Russia's largest banks in the international financial system, preventing Russia's central bank from defending the Russian ruble, making Putin's $630 billion war fund worthless. 
We're choking Russia's access to technology that will sap its economic strength and weaken its military for years to come. So the U.S. is putting all these uh, economic sanctions against Russia or Russians, and it's supplying weapons to the Ukraine. And I think, you know, it's all well and good to say we're not going to go to Ukraine or send troops to Ukraine, which is, we're going to hear that shortly, but... You know, when you when you take certain actions, you are basically involving yourself in the war. I, th- I think one of the international leaders said we're waging economic war on Russia. And, you know, that is true. And it's a proxy war where we're sending military equipment to Ukraine. And that means, you know, if Russia was says that we're right in invading Ukraine, then they're just as right. They have just as much provocation now to attack the U.S. So we're basically we're giving them reason to go to war with us and Will they do that? Probably not. But it's not not necessarily, you know, we need to realize what action we're taking as we're effectively declaring war on Russia without a declaration. Right, which is the same idea that the no-fly zone was, is that it would effectively be declaring war because what when they start to fly there and you shoot them down, you have now gone into a hot war. And even economic sanctions, he talks about trying to affect the oligarchs. That's not what economic sanctions do. They can but the ones that they chose to do were not on oil and gas. All the oligarchs make their money off of oil and gas. That's what funds Russia's military is oil and gas. That's why as the price of oil went up, he has a $460 million war chest that he's or $460 billion war chest. Excuse me, I misspoke. But the reason he has that war chest is because of oil and gas. And that's the one thing that the sanctions will not touch. So what, what, President Biden and the Europeans are doing is they're not waging war against Putin and the oligarchs. They're waging war against the poor in Russia because the rich will continue to get their money from oil and gas. So he's choosing to attack the poor in Russia and they there will be starvation. There will be I mean, this is a real attack on the poor. You know, I think it was the president of the EU that said this is total economic warfare. But it's not going to affect the people that have billions of dollars. Right. It's not going to affect the military because the military is all funded by oil and gas. They're taking all the – you hear all the stories of the oligarchs taking their yachts to the Maldives or whatever, to places where there is no extradition treaty. So, yeah, they're, they're somewhere in their yacht enjoying, you know, being okay. And the people who can't, who can't make ends meet, all of a sudden, no imports are coming in. Their, their, their money has dropped in value dramatically. Prices for everything's rising, and and there's this, and and you watch the cheering that's happening here. A lot of people in this room, they know that's what's going on. They understand it a lot better than the people that Biden is really speaking to, as far as the American people. And you know, the U.S. has tried economic sanctions a lot of times, and other countries have for many, many years. And I think it's pretty dubious to say that they're all that good in actually getting the result that you want, because you kind of. You either are giving them a slap on the wrist that basically does nothing, like you're, you know, banning Putin from vacationing in the U.S. Well, what does he care about vacationing in the U.S.? Who cares? He doesn't care. Or you're killing a lot of people in a different country and starving people, which has happened in the past. And, you know, where exactly are you going to go in between? And Even if you are starving the people, even that is not necessarily... That doesn't have a lot of great examples where you are actually affecting the chains you want. Because often you're just making yourself a very hated enemy and you're, you're giving the, the dictator of that country reason to explain to his people, here's why we need to do what we're doing. Look how evil the U.S. is. Look at all the tro- problems they're causing you. It's their fault. Right. And again, and it's attacking the poor. And God says things about attacking the poor. Like in Psalm 10, 1 through 2. Why do you stand afar off, O Lord? Why do you hide in times of trouble? The wicked in his pride persecutes the poor. Let them be caught in the plots which they have devised. Right? I mean, that's, that's David's cry is that when people do this, they should be caught in these same plots. And we really are, in our pride, we're persecuting the poor in Russia because we don't want the risk of a hot war. And so instead, what we and we don't want to have Germany be you know, cold in next winter or not have their air conditioning this summer because 40%, something like that, of their their energy comes from Russia. So we don't want to cut off the thing that actually matters. Instead, we want to hit all these secondary things that just cause the poor to suffer. 
you know, if you look at economic sanctions, the only one that I can think of that had any positive effects was the, the one in Iran, where there they cut off all the oil. They cut off everything. The only thing they let come out was oil that they then could trade for food. And it still didn't cause the results that they wanted. They're, I mean, <laughs> the, the people, it almost always solidifies the power of the leadership when you do this. But at least they were able to project a lot less power. But it still didn't have the result that you wanted. But when you do a one where all the elite are protected and the poor suffer, we should expect the wrath of God on our nation. God does not like you to to attack the poor. And that's what we're doing with these sanctions. I mean, Russia's the number one wheat exporter and the number two oil exporter. If you leave those in place, you're not really, you know, you could eat, you could cut those off and that's going to have a huge impact on Russia. And you're not doing that. So you're not doing total economic warfare. You're either, you know, hurting them moderately or you're not hurting them much at all, but you're not using your, you know, you, <laughs> there's more rhetoric than there is substance behind some of the things they're saying. Except there will be people that will really suffer because of the economic sanctions. Our forces are not engaged and will not engage in the conflict with Russian forces in Ukraine. Our forces are not going to Europe to fight Ukraine, but to defend our NATO allies in the event that Putin decides to keep moving west. The United States and our allies will defend every inch of territory that is NATO territory with the full force of our collective power. Every single inch. Earlier, he talked about the fact that Russia was being stopped by the Ukrainian people. And then on the other side, they're scared that Russia might take over Europe. I mean, you know, I mean, and, and he just he just switches. I mean, this is one of the things where it's, it's so easy to get caught if you're if you're not paying attention, if you're not actually thinking it's so easy to get caught up. But he's just completely switching the substance of his argument. Russia can't beat the Ukrainian people. Russia could come in and take over Europe. We have to be able to send over extra troops, even though there's I forget how many millions of NATO troops. Two point three. Two, yeah. Two point three million NATO troops in Europe right now. But we need to send over more troops just in case you know, Russia decides to take over Europe. And the problem is, we've heard the State Department many times before in the United States say, we'll never do this right before they do it. And so we should just listen to these things with a grain of salt. One of the reasons that the founders of this country said no standing army is because the history of the world, if you have a standing army, you use it. Right. That's what a standing army does. Nobody wants to just have a standing army to have them stand there. And so when all of a sudden you're building up troops on the borders of these nations, you're, you're feeding kindling right next to the fire that a spark can easily catch on fire. Did NATO have to worry about the 200,000 troops that or 150 to 200,000 troops that, that Russia had on the border of Ukraine? Really, they have 2.3 million. It's, it's not that big of a risk, and it's not that far of a distance to move them there. But all of a sudden, we put more over there. This is, this is, you know, gathering fuel for the fire, even if you're not putting it in yet. And even though Biden again is saying, "I will never do this," we've heard that before. And but you know, there's if you haven't noticed yet, there's a lot of criticism of the president's speech in this. In this discussion. <laughs> it will probably continue. <laughs> but you know, to, but this is to be. This is a good to, to say we're not sending troops to Ukraine. It's a good thing, yes. and it's good that he said it. And let's do all we can to make sure that he keeps saying that and doesn't, you know, doesn't change. You know, there was a I saw an interview with the vice president and they're asking her, well, there's all these people suffering in Ukraine. Why don't we send troops over to actually fight and help them? And her answer was basically, well, it's because we've decided not to. So if they don't have any if they aren't able to explain why they're doing it, that's going to that could be a problem because we need to understand why it'd be a really bad idea to do that. And part of it is, is that, again, I'm older than all of you, but I've seen this happen before. And what happens is they go, we won't send troops in. We'll just fly planes over and start to shoot people down. And sorry, you've already sent troops in, but they will redefine terms. So at first they'll start out by saying we didn't do this, and then they'll redefine terms and start doing it. So they're doing what they said they wouldn't do, but yet they say, no, 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 we're still meaning the letter of what we said. And that's how you get into Vietnam, and that's how you get into these wars, is this incrementalism where you say, well, we, we won't send troops, and we're just going to send in trainers, right? We had troops in Ukraine. when this, Yeah, we're going to 
but especially like in in Vietnam, they sent in people to train the the Vietnamese troops. They didn't send in anybody to fight. They didn't send in troops. They just sent in military people that are usually called troops to train. The, and this is how we ended up having a lot of people in Vietnam. So I completely agree with you, Joshua, that these statements are right, and the American people need to hold them accountable because we shouldn't assume that President Biden and the rest of the administration are going to continue to maintain this because we should learn from American past history to go, they won't maintain it in all likelihood unless there's political pressure at home, unless there's domestic pressure to do it. And one of the ways to get around the domestic pressure is you keep making we're the good guys. We're the ones, the Ukrainians, they're the good freedom fighters, not the incredibly corrupt government of Zelensky. We don't talk about that anymore like we were two years ago. We didn't talk that much about it. But if you talked about Ukraine, you talked about the corruption in Ukraine. Right. And now we're talking about how they're such a great democracy. Well, no, that's, that's not true. They weren't a great democracy. You know, and if you watched uh, the president's impeachment trial, the one thing, the first impeachment trial, you know, the one thing that everyone was just, that they were asking everyone, that everyone was, whether they were pro-Trump or anti-Trump, were very consistent on is that Ukraine has a lot of problems with corruption. You know, pro-Trump, anti-Trump, all the same. And, you know, and we need to realize that the steps that have been taken are already too far. I mean, we, we already said we're basically involving ourselves in the war by trying to economically hurt them and sending in, you know, ammunition, missiles, these type of things. And, and we need to realize the state that we're in because in a few minutes here, he's going to be talking about inflation. And, you know, it's one thing to help your neighbor if your neighbor needs help. It's another thing to max out all your credit cards when you're already deeply in debt to help your neighbor. We are not in a place where we ought to be going out and helping people who need help. We have huge problems in our own country that we need to be fixing before we go to try to save the rest of the world, if that's even the right thing to do at all. And I'm taking robust action to make sure the pain of our sanctions is targeted at Russian economy and that we use every tool at our disposal to protect American businesses and consumers. Tonight, I can announce the United States has worked with 30 other countries to release 60 million barrels of oil from reserves around the world. And we stand ready to do more if necessary, united with our allies. These steps will help blunt gas prices here at home, but I know news about what's happening can seem alarming to all Americans. But I want you to know we're going to be okay. So we're going to be okay because the president is releasing oil reserves and he said 60 million barrels that sounds like a lot it does it sounds, <laughs> like, sounds a lot, like a lot but you know in 2020 the u.s consumption of oil per day was 18.8 18.9 million barrels per day so effectively he's providing the united states with about three and a quarter days of oil that's what he's saying in the speech. You know, the and that's going to blunt gas prices. Or if you want to do it from the Russian perspective, Russia pumps about 5.8 million barrels of oil a day. So in 12 days, they will pump as much oil as they're releasing from all the reserves. So and what this are those is, reserves for? They're for war. Are those what really they, emergency it's, it's times where there's supply, where there's suddenly there's a, a, a lack of and oil, and originally and they were created for war, right. because if you have all the Middle East cut off, you're not going to have right. enough supply, and so you kept them for war. But now they've used, started to use them to try to blunt prices. But or to, uh, is, to put out propaganda about how they're blunting prices, because as, right. as we as we say, it's not days, blunting prices. But I mean, what he's really saying in saying this is we can't cut off Russia. Because we release a major portion or a significant portion, not major, but significant portion of our reserves, and we'll cover there for 12 days. Now, another interesting piece of information is just how much, how much we've reduced our production <laughs> since Biden came into office, because we've reduced our production by about 15 percent which is a significant amount of oil because we were net positive. So you said 12 million? Was that it was, about what it was? It was almost 19 million consumption. Consumption. Per day. I don't know what the production was. Right. So I think production was about 13 million barrels of oil under President Trump. Under, under President Biden, 
it's it's down about 15%, something like that. And so that seems to me to be a better way to control prices because it doesn't take that long to to make up those 30 million barrels that we're releasing from our strategic reserves. And then you actually lower the price of oil in reality. But the sacrifice for that would have to be the green plans. It would have to be, you'd have to say, well, we're not going to, we're going to accept more pollution here instead of shifting it to other countries like Russia, which is essentially what we're doing is we're not going to pump oil here. We're going to buy it from Russia so that they, they're responsible for, even though we're the ones that burn it and actually produce the pollution, they're the ones that are responsible for the hydrocarbons so we feel better about ourselves. And so part of what we need to recognize here is we're doing these sanctions against Russian citizens that will really hurt them and really cause starvation so that we can feel good about the fact that the oil isn't pumped from our ground, that it's pumped from Russia's and then shipped here so that we can still burn it. And we're supposed to feel good about this. I mean, we just need to recognize that our country has gotten to the point where it's just not thinking about how these things fit together. It's thinking that somehow we've reduced our carbon footprint because we don't pump as much oil. Instead, all we're doing is shifting money to Russia so that they have money to invade Ukraine so that we don't pump as much oil so that we can feel better about ourselves and not have the pipeline that comes down from Canada. Yeah. Instead of buying an air conditioner, we're just going to open the refrigerator door and cool our house. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, 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 it's that. the same kind of idea. Right. I mean, you know, the, the sanction on, on Russia include uh, cutting off a pipeline and that's supposed to be constructed and then, uh, you know, causing inflation of the ruble. And, you know, since the president's come into office, he cut off a pipeline and there's inflation in the U.S. So what is the United States being sanctioned for? Because we're, we're getting, the, we're same getting the same results. We're being sanctioned for environmental justice. <laughs> Penance. We'll create good jobs for millions of Americans, modernizing roads, airports, ports, waterways all across America. And we'll do it to withstand the devastating effects of climate change and promote environmental justice. We'll build a national network of 500,000 electric vehicle charging stations. Begin to replace the poisonous lead pipes so every child, every American has clean water to drink at home and at school. Provide affordable, high-speed internet for every American, rural, suburban, urban, and tribal communities. Somebody want to say something about environmental justice? <laughs> you try and be charitable and you try and say, what does this mean? And the best I can do is say, well, nobody's against justice. Everybody likes justice. So. No, they don't. <laughs> Everybody hates justice for themselves. They want it for justice other people. Like, come on. <laughs> but seriously, if you say justice, you can't, you can't posture, oh, oh, no, I, I don't want justice. But then, you know, you put an adjective in front of it and you say environmental justice. Ooh, is it even a thing? Like what? What, is it the what context is is that justice for the environment? Is that justice for people with an environmental element to it? It's it's just not clear. It's just one of those things that you're. I think expecting. it's when the ants destroyed Isengard. I mean, well, I think you want I think everybody <laughs> to stand up and applaud when you say something because you're lulling them to sleep with a concept that really doesn't have content to it. I mean, I think the the idea behind. Uh, environmental justice is saying, well, I'm not an expert on environmental <laughs> justice, but what I've heard is that it's things like, you know, the rich people cause climate change and then the people off in the islands in the Pacific lose their island because the seawaters rise. And so the rich people are benefiting from carbon dioxide production and the poor people are suffering. Kind of bringing intersectionality to uh, climate science. And what I one of the reasons that I wanted to do this clip is what he says immediately afterwards is he's going to do 500,000 500, charging stations for electric vehicles. So my understanding of environmental justice is it's somehow that you need to change the environment so that it doesn't hurt the poor people and just help the rich people, right? So even though Al Gore is flying around on his plane and he has, you know, as many, I forget what his house was like, it is 50 times more than the average house in Tennessee, you know, that's, that's, that's the rich shouldn't be using more energy than the poor, that it's supposed to be that you balance that out. So why have the 500,000 charging stations? Because the average person that buys an electric vehicle, the household income is 150,000. 
the average household income in the United States is 63 something, 63, 64,000. So he's saying environmental justice, and then we're going to make a multi-billion, lots of billions to fund the rich to have these vehicles so that they can feel better about themselves. And it's like completely the opposite of environmental justice is he then turns around and says, we're going to do this huge supplement where we're going to finance the rich to get their toys, which is what it's about. It's financing the rich to get their toys so that they can all drive around in their electric vehicles feeling better about themselves. It's trickle-down environmental justice. Because the reality is, is most of the poor drive their cars a lot more than the wealthy do. And so they can't use electric vehicles because they can't sit there for an hour waiting for it to charge. And so the reality is, is there's very little demand among the people that actually use their vehicles for for work there's a lot less demand for that the people that have to live out in the suburbs to drive into the cities as opposed to the people that have the mansions on the the river in downtown of the city right, right? i mean it's it's not even trickled down i don't think they even have an argument for how it would trickle down to the poor i mean right this is this is just a huge transfer of wealth from the middle class to the rich that's what the 500,000 charging stations are about and that he he puts that immediately after we want environmental justice, and, and they all clap because some of them are wanting to buy electric cars. <laughs> Probably. Oh, they don't they don't need the subsidy. They can do. They'll be fine. Companies are choosing to build new factories here, when just a few years ago they would have gone overseas. That's what's happening. Ford is investing eleven billion dollars in electric vehicles, creating eleven thousand jobs across the country. GM is making the largest investment in its history, $7 billion to build electric vehicles, creating 4,000 jobs in Michigan. All told, 369,000 new manufacturing jobs were created in America last year alone. Is he trying to lull us to sleep again with big numbers? (laughs) Well, one thing he wants to do is he wants to brag about how many jobs he created when the reality is the vast majority of these jobs were jobs that just returned because people started to come back after they were forced to shut down because of COVID. So, so all those manufacturing jobs, manufacturing was an area that was widely shut down. And so, Earlier, he said he was going to use every tool at his disposal to make sure that American businesses weren't harmed, even though he just was recently stopped by the Supreme Court from harming American <laughs> businesses and, and using the power. You know what I mean? And, and like you're talking about people coming. I mean, it's yeah, it's exactly the opposite. But when one thing that really bothers me about this is he cites all these numbers about GM. He cites these numbers about Ford and Tesla has a lot more people working on it. Like more than twice as much as both of them put together. And he doesn't mention Tesla. Why doesn't he mention Tesla? Probably because they're not unionized. And so he's bragging about things and he's choosing people and trying to focus his major speech to be a marketing push for General Motors and Ford. Tesla's also an American manufacturer and he's done this before President Biden has where he does an electrical vehicle summit and the biggest manufacturer of electrical vehicles in the United States isn't invited. Well, why? Well, because they're not unionized. I mean, we when we hear these things, we should always It's always concerning to me when the government starts to try to basically market private industry because it's really hard for other people to compete when somebody's marketing private industry against you, when the government is against you in marketing private industry. And, hey, the whole thing with Tesla, the reason that they make money is because of government regulation. It's all kinds of stuff. I mean, it's this whole mix. But still, it's disturbing that the president goes and is trying to promote things that that he really shouldn't be promoting. This isn't the proper role for a president to be promoting people like that. But when Tesla, but, but you should point out, I mean, Tesla government shouldn't have given those subsidies, but they gave those subsidies to anyone who made electronic cars, and Tesla just took advantage of them. It wasn't the government coming out and saying we're going to promote Tesla. It wasn't the government coming out, and, you know, and and. So both of those things are a problem, but it's even more of a problem when they're partial in their distribution of praise, partial in their distribution of focus, when they do it for just purely political purposes. And that that is what's happening here. My plan to fight inflation will lower your costs and lower the deficit. 17 Nobel laureates in economics said my plan will ease long-term inflationary pressures. Top business leaders 
And I believe most Americans support the plan. And here's the plan. First, cut the cost of prescription drugs. Do we need to define inflation? I mean, so, you know, inflation is just basically, I mean, we had a whole podcast about this. It, we'd recommend you go back and listen to that because, but, but basically inflation is your money is less valuable. It has less buying power over time. And so, and right now we've been seeing progressively increasing inflation. Your money's worth less. You know this, you feel this. Everything that you are regularly buying is more expensive. Gas, food, rent, all these things are rising. So in order to combat that, he's going to cut prices of prescription drugs. How? Right. And, and, you know, it's kind of his the inflation is coming because primarily um, they're uh, printing a bunch of money to send out of stimulus checks and for a bunch of other reasons. But they sent out a bunch of stimulus checks and had lower tax returns. So there was a huge deficit and that translates directly to inflation. But now, you know, their inflation is used in multiple ways. It's used inflation of the money supply and it's also used in uh, prices, average prices going up. When the, when the actual root cause is the first one, there's a real temptation to pretend like the problem is that the prices are too high when the actual problem is that you devalue the money by printing a bunch of extra money. And that's what I think. You look at his plan to fight inflation, it's ignoring the cause of inflation, which is not rising prices. The cause of inflation is printing a bunch of money. One of the things that I noticed, and he tried this with meat, right? He tried this with meat packers before to say it was the meat packers that were, were raising their prices so much as why there was inflation. Well, that's ridiculous. That's just not true. The reality is most people that feel inflation, they feel it in housing costs. They feel it in, in their gas at the pump. They feel it in their price of food. They, right? I mean, they feel it in the things that they consume the most of. Yes. The reality is except for insulin, which is what he goes on and talks about, most people under the age of 60 don't spend that much on health care. It's after you get into your 70s and 80s that you spend the vast majority of the money that's spent on health care in your life is after you're, you're quite a bit older. And so he's selling this, saying he's going to fight inflation by dealing with this thing that isn't how most people feel inflation at all. I don't see how he gets a connection with the people to go, oh, yeah, you're going to solve my problem because the vast majority of households, that's not the problem. Because once you're over 65, when you spend most of it, you're on Medicare anyway, and the price doesn't matter that much. You could, make you could wave a wand and take away all health care costs. It wouldn't bring down the pain of these things that were that people are actually dealing with. The things you were talking about, especially gasoline, it would have almost no effect on right. that. And I mean, and yes, there would be these residual effects throughout the economy, and yeah, it would play out. But I'm just saying. But and so whenever you go and you say I'm going to deal with this thing, that yeah, it's insulin costs are real and they are higher than there. It would be great if someone came up with a way to deal with with insulin costs. But that's not where people are feeling the burn. That's not the place that's causing pain across the board. Right. So in fairness, he did say this was the first thing. He says a few other ones that will let's review so those. Let's go to the next one. Let's cut energy costs for families. An average of $500 a year by combating climate change. Let's provide an investment tax credit to weatherize your home and your business. To be energy efficient and get a tax credit for it. Double America's clean energy production in solar, wind, and so much more. Lower the price of electric vehicles, saving another $80 a month that you're not going to have to pay at the pump. He's just sprinkling fairy dust on us at this point. I mean, this is, none of this makes any kind of economic sense. This is all just wishful thinking. All right, so, so we're going to combat inflation by climate change initiatives, all of which cost more than the way things currently are now and don't seem to have trickle-down effects such that they would cost less later. Right. This, you know, you're, let's fight inflation by doing the thing that caused the inflation, spending a bunch of money that we don't have and inflating the, the money supply. I mean, it's, that's the opposite of what you want to do if you want to fight inflation. Even the people who are pushing the climate change stuff say this is going to cost a bunch of money. 
You know, that if they're being honest, they say, we need to do this, but it's going to cost a bunch of money. And he's saying, we're going to do it, and it's going to save money. When we say fight inflation, to fight inflation, you have to print less money. That's really the basic way you fight inflation. There's no other way to get around it. So as soon as you say tax credit, as soon as you say subsidies, you're saying we're going to add to inflation by definition because you have to inflate the money supply or you have to borrow money, which causes other kinds of inflation. I mean, other kinds of price increases. But one way or the other, I mean, this is the opposite of what you actually do to fight inflation. You look at these things like wind and solar and all these things that he pretends like work. The problem with them is, is that you still have to build the other power plant to supply the power when those things aren't working, which is what we found out in Texas, right? There was those, those days last year that, that, you know, in Texas, there was all kinds of power outages. Well, it was all the... The, the natural gas burners and things like that were producing all the energy, all the wind and solar was offline because right. it was too cold. And so they didn't ramp that up, but they ramped down the wind and the solar exactly like they planned to. And so these are, you know, these are sunny day means to produce electricity, right? Wind and solar. They're when the weather's good. They're not for when the weather's bad. So if you want to use that, you have to double your manufacturing. It's not like you skip making the other plants. You still have to make them because you still need the power in times of emergency. Or you have to accept that you'll be like a country that some days you don't have power. Right. Like, you like have California? <laughs> <laughs> I was thinking Nigeria, but yeah, you actually, yours is a better example. <laughs> but I mean, you have to change the the view and the relationship of your nation towards power and towards towards reliability of certain internal internal systems which is a way to i mean that is the natural way to deflate the currency is you just say you can't afford it and you just go without and then the prices of things drop because people are going without but to pretend like we'll get more and still keep the same thing no what you do is you go without if you're going to spend more to produce the same thing, you have to go without in order to reduce the price. The third thing we can do to change the standard of living for hardworking folks is cut the cost of child care. If you live in a major city in America, you pay up to $14,000 a year for child care per child. My plan would cut the cost of child care in half for most families and help parents, including millions of women who left the workforce during the pandemic because they couldn't afford childcare, to be able to get back to work, generating economic growth. But my plan doesn't stop there. It also includes home and long-term care, more affordable housing, pre-K for three and four-year-olds. <clears throat> All these will lower costs to families. Where to start? You can somehow create all these new programs. You can pay all these people. He says that health care or that child care won't go up in price. But what he doesn't mention is right now, most you know, preschool child care is done by people with high school degrees. And part of his bill is to require college degrees in order to be uh, to do child care, in which case the estimate is that child care price will double for everybody except those who are subsidized by the government. And so he's saying it'll just be, it's not going to be 14000 anymore. It'll be twenty eight to 34000 something like that, or the estimates once his plan goes into effect. Except just like health care, everybody will get a check in the mail to cover part of it, is what his promise is. But where does that check come from? The government prints money, which produces inflation. This, is, you know, this reminds me more or less basically of everything that's happened with the grants and loan programs for colleges. Yes. It's basically the same thing. You want a service for the education and care of your children. They happen to be 18 years old, but you want that service, and, and it costs a lot of money, so the government says, we'll step in and help. We'll do various programs that provide money to lower your costs. And then the colleges look, and they say, oh, look, there's more money being supplied for the same, so they lower their prices. For the same services that we're <laughs> offering, we know what people are willing to spend. Our price is going to go up. And, you know, aside maybe from pharmaceuticals and healthcare, there's no industry, there's no good that you purchase that has seen higher inflation over the last couple of decades than the cost of a college education. And it's because the government stepped in and said, we'll make it cheaper. 
and they have done exactly the opposite. Why should we think this is any different? And it clearly won't be any different. I mean, just what he's saying, what you do is if you if you increase the demand and you keep and you restrict the supply, it's basic economics. The costs go up. So he's passing a bill that he's going to greatly increase demand because he's saying, we'll send out a check to anybody, anybody that's spending over 7% of their income on, on child care, we're going to send them a check to cover the rest. Well, guess what? You just dramatically increase because there's a lot of parents who don't want to take care of their children. And now they can do it for free, have somebody else pay for it. So you dramatically increase the demand and then you restrict the supply by creating all kinds of new regulations for the supply. It's just the opposite of the most basic economics that everybody knows, that everybody knew from when they were a child when there was something and you wanted to buy it and two people wanted to buy it and they argue over who will pay more. I mean, people know how this works. This is basic. But yet he's saying this will fight inflation. It will do exactly the opposite. But once childcare goes up so much, college education won't look so bad anymore. <laughs> You'll say, oh, that's, that's a perfectly reasonable price. Now the colleges <laughs> will go, why shouldn't we get more subsidy? <laughs> exactly. I'm sending my kid to Harvard to be watched every day because I can't afford preschool. <laughs> but, you know, there's so many times in his speech that he talks about a problem that was caused by government regulation and he proposes to fix it by adding a new layer of government regulation. Well, you're only going to make your problem worse. And governments paying for things always increases the cost. I mean, there's a reason why they put a hammer on an airplane and it costs $700 when you can go down to the local store and buy one for 12 It's because that's what governments do. They do all kinds of things to protect, the, to, to make sure that people aren't stealing money, and they create all these levels of bureaucracy. So everything costs more if it's done by a government. You why should we think child care would be any different? These were, in his speech, these were the three things that he was going to do to fight inflation. First, right. second, third. First, second, third. The there were pillars. only three things, the right. three pillars. You reduce drug costs, you pay for free child care for everybody, and you subsidize electric vehicles. That's his plan to reduce inflation. I mean, he mentioned which some other things afterwards. Well, yeah, so this, but this is his like plan. A, right. No, I mean, he, he mentioned lowering, lowering housing costs and lowering, you know, he said there's other stuff. The, the rest of the speech was how he's going to help inflation. You have to <laughs> right, right. put Karen in the stick. Well, but in the end, I mean, but no, but that was it. Those were his. Those were his. Those what he defined those as his three. That they were the three most important. Right, and and just need to recognize that if you're have investments and stuff, looking for long term inflation is where you should be after this speech because that's what we should expect in our culture. If it follows what President Biden is pushing for, we will have very high inflation. Let's pass the Paycheck Fairness Act and paid leave. Raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. We're going to fight inflation and help deal with inflation by raising the cost of all the employees for companies. I'm sorry, this doesn't, <laughs> this doesn't add up. This is ridiculous. You don't reduce the costs by, and he, sa he said that what we need to do in all this, I'm going to do something completely different to deal with inflation in his introduction to a section on inflation is I'm going to reduce the cost of production rather than, so that the, so that the costs don't continue to go up rather than putting it on the backs of working people by having higher interest rates and stuff like that. And then he not that many minutes later, turns around and says he's going to, in most states or many states, double the cost of what it will cost at a minimum to pay somebody and that this is going to reduce production costs. So, I, you know, here's, here's how the argument works is, is you have to kind of squish back and forth between talking about inflation and talking about cost of living, which are related, but they don't mean exactly mm -hmm. the same thing. And then... You know, so you're saying oh, we're going to solve inflation problems, but then you're really addressing people on cost of living problems. And so if I'm thinking about my cost of living and, it, it, you know, here's, okay, I'm spending more on all of these things. Hey, wouldn't it be great if I had a bigger paycheck? Because, hey, my cost of living increases. I'm going to need one. <laughs> when I get more money. And if you just say, all right, you're, you know, you're making $12 an hour. Now you're making $15 an hour minimum by law. Hey, that's great. I'll take that kind of a raise. You know, why don't we make why, it 30? Why, why don't we make it 1,000? Why shouldn't it work? 
I mean, the $15 an hour is almost out of date because of the inflation that has already gone and the demand for, for low-level employees, especially like somebody like AOC. And New York City, I'm sure that the minimum effective minimum wage is above $15 an hour already. Right. So pretty close to that in North Carolina in some Right. In and in New York City, it has to be much higher than that. And so inflation has already caused this to happen. But what it will definitely do is push more inflation because you can't increase your costs of production and expect those costs not to be passed along. Let's pass the PRO Act. When a majority of workers want to form a union, they shouldn't be able to be stopped. This is another thing that will cause great inflation. What the PRO Act does is basically changes it so that it's the same thing that they're trying to do with the voting acts, which is make it so that that it's easy to manipulate an election, right? The PRO Act says that, that the, it's restricting the rights of the company to speak to their employees. And it's saying that you can do a ballot that is a secret ballot that's passed in outside of the company and isn't done on the same day. So they can basically keep collecting ballots until they get over 50% and then they trigger it. And so this is a way to, to do a huge shift towards the unions. Well, union labor is a lot more expensive than non-union labor. One of the reasons is because the union takes a lot and then it also hands a lot to the Democratic Party is why it's more expensive. But union labor is more expensive. And so, again, he's saying we need to do the PRO Act to help unions not not to fix the problems in the country, but to aggravate the problems in the country. Because if you get more unionized shops, because a lot of times what happens is the union goes in because they see something as the, a, a shop is disgruntled. And what the law says now is the, the management can go and say, you're upset about this. Let's resolve this and stop the unionization. And what that's trying to do is prevent that. That's what the, one of the things that the PRO Act does. So it's definitely this effort to shift to get unionization to increase prices, which doesn't cut, reduce your cost of production. <laughs> it just increases it. All his plans do the same thing. They make inflation worse. Ban assault weapons with high-capacity magazines hold up 100 rounds. You think the deer are wearing Kevlar vests? Look, repeal the liability shield. It makes gun manufacturers the only industry in America that can't be sued. The only one. Talked about at the beginning of this, Ukraine, where the U.S. is sending guns to Ukraine. Ukraine had strict gun laws that they immediately repealed when they were getting invaded and started to hand out automatic weapons to the people sent, you know, well, it's generalized. They sent from the U.S. So we need to. Send but hey, nobody needs a hundred round magazine. Right. So we need to send guns to Ukraine, but stop Americans from having guns. Not very logical. And then he makes a statement that was just a bold-faced lie. I don't know how else to put it. Gun manufacturers can be sued for negligence. They can't be sued because somebody takes a weapon that fires the way it's supposed to fire and uses that weapon to kill somebody. That's true for every industry. Right. The gun manufacturers are not a special case at all. Any more than you can sue Ford for someone hitting you with their car. Right. The only way you can sue Ford is if the brakes failed. Right. And if you do the person due to negligence and if the person with the gun, if they don't have their hand on the trigger and somehow it accidentally fires, then you can sue the gun manufacturers. His statement is the meant that the gun manufacturers should be in this special case that's completely different than any other company except perhaps the tobacco companies, because they did this with the big tobacco, where even though the people chose to do it, but to prove that they could could charge the liability to big tobacco, what they had to do is prove that to big tobacco knew that it was a carcinogen and refused to do anything about it. That's not the case here. So he's taking something and trying to say, we should destroy the gun manufacturers like we did big tobacco. But it's a completely different situation. If we start to say that you're liable for however your product is used, boy, you've got a big problem. The, the knife manufacturers, you make kitchen knives, somebody's murdered, you have to pay for their, in, in, let's be serious, a jury sees a woman weeping because her husband was stabbed. They will give that woman millions of dollars. This is what almost destroyed the private aviation industry in the United States, was that very thing. It wasn't the plane manufacturer's fault, but because the pilot killed himself because of human error, the widow gets a bunch of money, and it almost destroyed industries. And to pretend like this is normal, to pretend like 
this is what the law is in other cases is just blatantly false, and it's a blatant misrepresent- misrepresentation of what our laws are like in the United States. Right. It's not only just a lie. It's also just, it's a it's an attempt to skew just thinking. You know what I mean? It is it is a purposeful attempt to make people think differently about what is just and what is right. I mean, it needs even it even flies against the fact it was Sandy the the parents of Sandy Hook, I believe, successfully sued their lawsuits won against a gun manufacturer. I don't know that I even necessarily agree with the way it was brought against it, but he can't even argue that they don't get. I mean, didn't right. they settle? But either way, that still would be a, that they had, saw a liability. I thought there was a ruling against them, and may, maybe be. they settled before they got to penalty. But I mean, I thought they were I thought they were successfully. Is this re- re- recent? I know one just. Yes, settled. this was very recent. I mean, at least I mean, maybe it was that the merits of their case. Normally, the cases are thrown out. This is probably what it was. In the case, of, let me back it up. Then he's saying that they can't be sued. In the case of like the Sandy Hook fam- parents, the court normally throws out cases against them. In this case, the court actually allowed the case to go forward because they were saying that their marketing practices were targeting specific sectors in a way that they shouldn't have been. And I think it ended up with a settlement, but it ended up with a settlement because the court allowed the case to go forward and they recognized that they were probably going to lose. And so they ended up settling and, and coming to an agreement there. But he's I mean, it's it, that bold face of a lie that what, they just had been sued and the case was allowed to move forward. So, I mean, it's it's pretty horrendous. And the one of the purposes of judges is to go, no, we recognize the emotions of juries. So, no, it can't go to trial because they don't have liability here. And in that case, if they did false marketing, that's fine. They have sure. liability. They should be punished for their liability. But I don't think they don't were marketing Maldi. to school shooters. So, I don't think, so I don't think that case... I don't see how that case could have merit because I've never seen a gun ad saying, school shooters, get your gun from us. Yeah, it was it was a pretty, I mean, it's in a lot of cases, we've we've actually allowed a lot of things to be sued for that we should not allow. I mean, years ago, I heard that one of the biggest areas of American reform needed was tort reform, and I think that's I probably think that's still changed, very yeah. true. The onslaught of state laws targeting transgender Americans and their families, it's simply wrong. I said last year, especially to our younger transgender Americans, I'll always have your back as your president so you can be yourself and reach your God-given potential. In a night full of a whole lot of, of gaffes and misrepresentations and outright lies, the one where you invoke God is, is not the time to really blow it. But when you want to start talking about the issue of transgender, and you want to put in in the category of reaching a, quote, person's God-given potential, you've totally lost it. Because that's what it's all about. That's in the beginning, God created them male and female, created he them. God did give people a given potential. And everything about the trans movement is a rebellion against that specific thing against their God-given potential, against what God made them to be. And he's just completely flipping it. I mean, every verse in your Bible talking about calling good evil, evil good, calling black white, this is it. You just saw it happen, and you saw our president do it. And you shouldn't expect anything less than the judgment of God for something like this. And the horrible persecution that he's talking about largely, as most states are saying, that are passing bills are saying that you can't mutilate the the body of a of a young girl typically but it also applies to young men but young girl before she's of the age of majority and you can't do it without her parents permission if she's a minor these are the outrageous bills that they're passing right. because the reality is most girls that are mutilated in this fashion by the time they turn 18 they are sorry that they will never nurse a baby that they will never be able to have a baby in a lot of cases. And yet a 14-year-old, a 12-year-old, a 13-year-old has been manipulated by evil teachers, and the school system will not even let the parents know about it. So the legislatures are stepping in and saying, you have to notify the parents. You have to wait until they're mature. And this is what President Biden is saying is this horrible persecution of the transgendered. It's just this ridiculous thing that we think it's okay to, to sacrifice our children, to mutilate them, and to cut them up because they're going through puberty. 
because that's what a lot of it is. These girls just don't even know their body's changing and they are uncomfortable with it. So they get convinced that they should be cut up. It's pure evil. And he's saying that, like you said, it is calling good evil and evil good. It is good to stop it. And he's calling it evil to stop it. And he's calling it good to allow it to continue. And it is just one of the worst things that's happening in America today. And invoking the name of God to do it. Right. When he says, I have your back, what he's saying is, is I hate, I hate these children. I hate these girls. I hate these boys. I hate them so very much with a passion that I will let, turn them over to the, the, the way you can be thrown around as a child, the way you can be manipulated, the way you can be tossed to and fro, the way you can be pulled in a false direction. I don't want them to have safety. I don't want them to have protection. So as we talk about this and and listen to parts of the State of the Union address, it is important for us to understand the direction that our leaders are trying to take the country. Because the church has a responsibility to be the pillar and ground of the truth. We have a responsibility to speak out. Because the direction that it's being taken is a direction that's contrary to how God would would have the country to be run, how God would say is justice and truth. So the churches should be speaking out. We're told where it's going. Are we going to stop it? This has been The Conquering Truth, a project of Reformation Baptist Church. If you found this helpful, you can visit us online at theconqueringtruth.com and subscribe here or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for watching.